Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today's Thursday, September 3rd, 2020. In today's podcast, ectopic pregnancy, right time, wrong place. Lish Lansky and I talk about ectopic pregnancy, what it is, why we care, how we diagnose it, and how we treat it. It's a topic that seems to confuse a lot of people, and I think Liz is terrific at explaining it in a way that just makes sense. Next week, we will have a podcast on Labor Day. Andre Rebarber and I will discuss the topic of cerclage. I wanted to give a huge shout out to Ida Bang and my nephew, Andy Agus, on their wedding tonight. We are all so excited to celebrate with you. Have a great day and a great weekend. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. We're here with Liz Lansky, podcast sensation, and we're going to be talking today about ectopic pregnancy. Liz, how you doing? I'm great. How about you, Nadie? I'm good. We were just talking about our various summer plans and how they all fell apart because of COVID and restrictions. And so we're local. It's all good. But it's nice that at least we get to see each other face to face periodically or mask to mask, as I like to say. So ectopic pregnancy, which is something that sort of overlaps the world of gynecology and obstetrics. It's one of the early pregnancy complications. And it's an important one because it could be a dangerous one. And so it's it's something that's on our minds for early pregnancy. Liz, how would you explain to someone what an ectopic pregnancy is? I think in its simplest terms, it's a pregnancy that happens outside of the uterus. The estimates are about 1% to 2% of all pregnancies. Outside of the uterus can mean that it's in the cervix. Outside of the uterus can mean that it's in the tube or it's in the ovary or it's actually in the abdomen. The most common place for it to be is actually in the tube. And so that typically happens 90 to 95% of the time that it actually happens in the tube. And so ectopic pregnancy just describes a pregnancy that is located anywhere but in what we would call the right place, which is the yeah. uterus. Right. And so yes, sometimes even people use the term tubal pregnancy interchangeably with ectopic because so many of them are in the tube that it almost always means the same thing. But as you said, it doesn't always mean the same, not definitively. And I agree that the right place is the uterus. And it's not just because you know we're very prejudiced for the uterus. It's because that's really the only place a pregnancy can grow and thrive and in a way that's safe for the mother, right? So if there's a pregnancy in the tube, the tube is not built to accommodate a pregnancy. And so after a certain amount of time, the tube can actually burst open, which causes bleeding in the belly of the mother, which can be life-threatening. Correct. Actually, it's true of all the other locations as well. Yeah. If the pregnancy happens to be in the cervix, it can cause profound bleeding, and those can be very dangerous. There's one other location that I didn't mention. Well, it's actually not an ectopic pregnancy, but it, if it happens in the scar of a prior cesarean... It's not considered an ectopic, but it's also a dangerous pregnancy. Right. It's technically in the uterus, but it's not in the right place in the uterus because there's now like a defect in the wall and it plants in the defect. We don't call it ectopic, but it's the same concept. And I think that the two things that are important with this is number one, the ectopic pregnancies present a great danger to the mother. And number two, they're not viable pregnancies. So it's not like we're pitting mother against baby here. Like these pregnancies will not grow into babies that could be born and survive. 
And so it's not it's not like an abortion. There's an ectopic pregnancy. They're frequently not even viable at the time we notice. I mean, there's usually not a heartbeat, but sometimes there is in the virulent state, but it's not something that can develop and become. It can't be removed from the tube and placed in the uterus. People have asked us that before, which, you know, it sounds sort of logical, but it's just not scientifically possible, at least not now. And so it really is, we, we don't consider it a viable pregnancy. It's like a miscarriage, essentially, but it's more dangerous than a miscarriage. Correct. And so, as you said, it happens rarely, fortunately, maybe one in 200, one in 100, somewhere in the range of 1%, give or take, but there are risk factors for it. So who would be an increased risk of having an ectopic pregnancy? The literature pretty much says the folks that are at greatest risk would be people who have an injury to their tubes in the past. And so that injury can consist of having had an STD in the past where there's an infection of the tube. We'll talk about that in just a second. Other risk factors are in vitro. So IVF procedures, people are undergoing embryo transfer where the egg is being or the embryo is being placed back. For other folks, it's people who have prior surgeries on their tubes. So if somebody has an ectopic in the past, they're significantly more likely to have an ectopic in the future. And then lastly, it's a strange little category and it's hard to not misinterpret but people who have IUDs in place are more likely to have a pregnancy in the tube if they do get pregnant than the general population. Right. But they're, since they're less likely to get pregnant, overall, they're less likely to have an ectopic. But if they come in pregnant, it's more likely to be ectopic. That's a yeah. favorite <laughs> test question. Yeah. And then it, what's what sort of unifies all these is these are all really the risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy in the tube. Like a pregnancy in the cervix is just sort of bad luck, typically. The the reason that's the case is a lot of people may not realize that when conception takes place, the egg gets fertilized by the sperm, typically in the tube, right? The egg gets released from the ovary, the tube picks it up, and it's traveling from the ovary towards the uterus in the tube. And then the sperm come in from the uterus and enter the tube. And that's where fertilization occurs. So that's where the egg and the sperm meet. So you have this point in time, if there's a pregnancy, that it starts out in the tube. And the tube normally has this, you know, function where it gently massages that embryo towards the uterus. So anything that would damage the integrity of the tubes is more likely to lead an ectopic pregnancy. So prior infections, like you said, like a sexually transmitted disease in the belly, or maybe even an old appendicitis or surgery or endometriosis or, you know, any other surgery to the tube is more likely to do that. And the IUD makes sense because it's not going to let it get back into the uterus as well. So those are all the things that could do it. But most women who have an ectopic, it's just bad luck. They don't have any risk factors. And it just, for whatever reason, worked out that way, unfortunately. And then how do we know that someone has an ectopic pregnancy? How do we diagnose it? Well, first off, before any testing is ever done, it's really suspected more than anything, and it's based mm -hmm. on symptoms. So uh, women, as they miss a period, will many times begin to have some pain, and the pain can be in one side or the other. And so that increases our risk of suspicion that we go and look. But the usually definitive diagnosis is really through surgery. But ultrasound is also so well developed at this point that most ectopics can actually be diagnosed by ultrasound. Right. And that's also sort of one way or another, meaning you can either see the ectopic on ultrasound, right? So someone has an early pregnancy and we do an ultrasound and you see, number one, there is not a pregnancy in the uterus. And number two, you see there is a pregnancy elsewhere, 
So let's say it's the tube or maybe in the cervix or whatever. And that does happen. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen enough of the time. It's about a third of the time. And some of that is just because the ectopic pregnancies are sometimes very small and so you don't see them in the tube. Or sometimes the ultrasound resolution isn't good enough. Or sometimes near the tube are you know, blood vessels and bowel, and so you just can't see it. So there's a, many women who you can't see it directly. But the other way ultrasound is useful is if you have a pregnancy that you know is growing and developing based on blood tests, but you still can't see it in the uterus. And that's sort of the other way they get diagnosed. It's almost like a diagnosis of exclusion, like we deduce that there's an ectopic. So a woman comes in, she's pregnant, we send a pregnancy hormone level to a certain number, and we don't see a pregnancy in the uterus. And that happens because early pregnancies are very small. You don't see them anywhere because they're sort of microscopic and you wait. But if that hormone level keeps going up and up and up, exactly how high it has to go, but it goes over a certain amount and you still don't see it in the uterus, you know that there's something wrong. Either it's an ectopic or maybe it's in the uterus, but microscopic and not developing further. And that's the other way we use ultrasound in that not that we do see it, but we should see it and we don't in the uterus. And so ultrasound almost always comes into play unless someone comes in with symptoms. So other than pain, what would be a symptom of an ectopic pregnancy if someone has them? They're bleeding? So it's kind of a mixed picture. A large number of people will bleed. Sometimes they'll bleed very lightly when they should have had a period. And so it's an abnormal period for them. And then sometimes they'll bleed lightly leading right up to the point of diagnosis. Most ectopics are diagnosed right around six weeks after your last period. Some can be diagnosed a little bit earlier. Some can get diagnosed a little bit later, but that's a pretty common time period. So this this is all in the first usually 10 weeks of pregnancy. So it's important to let people know that as well, that it's usually not diagnosed at 11 or 12 or 13 right. weeks. Right, because typically if it was an ectopic and they're 11 or 12, 13, it would have caused symptoms because the, the tube would have started to open and there'd be bleeding. So that's why you would see it by then. It wouldn't You wouldn't have an 11-week-sized baby inside the tube. It just wouldn't happen. And I think that you know diagnosis is something that it's one of the things we don't always talk about openly with patients that you know we're making sure you don't have an ectopic. But it's always on the mind of the gynecologist and the obstetrician. When someone comes in with an early pregnancy, whether we're doing an ultrasound or not, it's almost like, okay, first thing we want to make sure this is in the right place. It's in the uterus. Because if it's not, it's ectopic. That's dangerous. And the second thing we try to find out is if it's in the uterus, is it a healthy pregnancy? It's a viable pregnancy? Because miscarriage is obviously a very bad outcome and we don't want it to happen, but it's far, far less likely to be dangerous to her. It would be sad but not dangerous. And I think that's frequently nowadays people do come in for early visits, early ultrasounds, early blood tests. And so there's a lot of this detective work to figure those things out. If someone just shows up at 10 weeks, usually it's pretty straightforward. But a lot of those people, if they had an ectopic before 10 weeks, they would have shown up with symptoms. Uh, the nice thing about it is if you diagnose an ectopic before there are symptoms, before she has severe pain or bleeding or she's bleeding inside her belly, and we'll get to treatments, the treatments could be easier and you have more options. If someone walks into the emergency room and it's obvious that her tube is ruptured, she has to have emergency surgery. There's really nowhere else that she can be. And so the idea is if we see women early, we could potentially diagnose it before that happens. Correct. And that's that's an important thing. So when, when people come for early pregnancies, usually the patient's saying, I want to make sure the, there's a heartbeat, the baby's healthy and everything looks fine, which is great. 
And we're thinking that's the second thing we're thinking. The first thing we're thinking is I want to make sure that you're safe, you're not in danger, that it's not an ectopic. Even though it's rare, we've all been there in those disasters in the middle of the night. And so that's what we're thinking. That's how I do it. And the diagnosis, again, it's either obvious from ultrasound that it's not in the uterus and we see it elsewhere, or it's obvious it's not an ectopic because we see it in the uterus, or we're not really sure, in which case there's usually back and forth with blood tests and ultrasounds, and it may take several days or several weeks even to figure out what's going on. I think one of the other things too that that's also helpful with ectopics is they tend to not follow the mold or the pattern of a regular pregnancy. Right. So hormone levels are supposed to double in about 72 hours. HCG is supposed to double. And typically with an ectopic, it may start off that way, but it usually will change. And so it doesn't follow the correct pattern. And it's really a combination of both blood work and ultrasound right. and, and clinical diagnosis of how somebody's feeling that actually usually helps to narrow it down that this is an ectopic pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of algorithms for this that are available, but basically what ends up happening is if someone comes in for an early pregnancy and we're sure it's in the uterus, we stop thinking about ectopic. If we're sure it's an ectopic, we go to treatment, which is again, the exception. And then there's a lot of people in the middle and there's a lot of ways it can go, but basically it's some combination of what are the symptoms? What are the ultrasound findings? What are the blood test results? Frequently it requires serial, some of those, right? Serial blood tests or serial ultrasounds or serial exams. And eventually we figure out, is it an ectopic? Is it a normal, healthy pregnancy? Or is it a miscarriage? And that's important because obviously the management and the prognosis for all those things are very, very different. And so let's say someone has an early pregnancy, they're going through this and one way or another, we find out that they have an ectopic pregnancy. And I first, we'll first talk about someone who has symptoms, like she comes to the emergency room, and then we'll talk about the scenario where there's more choices where we find out before she has symptoms. So someone comes in to the office, the emergency room, she has pain, maybe some light bleeding, and she's not doing so well, and we think there's an ectopic pregnancy or we're, we're suspicious of it. What happens at that point? If we're suspecting it's an ectopic pregnancy with pain, usually if there's blood in the abdomen and somebody is in at least mild discomfort to moderate discomfort, we'll usually operate on them. We do that laparoscopically with little incisions and a small camera where we're able to take a look and hopefully diagnose visually. If we do see an ectopic pregnancy, we actually have two choices. Right. One is to make an incision in the tube and it's this little tiny thing usually, or it should be a little tiny thing. With an ectopic, it's much, much fatter. We make a, a little incision and we're able to sometimes milk it out, which means that we kind of express the pregnancy. We're able to remove that and then the tube can heal and potentially still function pretty normally. Right. That operation we call a salpingostomy. Salping is the, the fancy word for tube and ostomy means I made a hole in it. That's, this is medical translation 101. <laughs> And the other way of operating is if you think you can't do that cleanly, the best next choice is to actually just remove the tube. And there can still be a small risk of ectopic after that. So you worry that if the tube is really damaged or the surgery that you're doing really damages it, the likelihood of having an ectopic in the future is about 50%. So sometimes the right choice is to actually remove the tube, which leaves you with just one other tube. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a tough decision about whether you should try to quote unquote save the tube or remove the entire tube. And there isn't 
one right answer. There have been studies that looked at this, and the results are kind of mixed, which makes sense. You know, if you, it's sort of each one has its merits. If you try to, if you successfully, quote unquote, save the tube, on the plus side, you've treated their topic pregnancy. They still have that tube. They can get pregnant on that side of the body again, and that's a plus. It's not like the recovery is the same for either. It's not really the surgical part. The downside is you may not have removed all of the tissue, so you could still have a lingering positive pregnancy test, which could take longer to quote-unquote recover and be able to get pregnant again, or you've left behind a damaged tube, in which case they have a higher chance of getting a topic on the same place, same tube, the next pregnancy. On the flip side, if you remove the tube, the upside is you don't have that, you don't have that right? The tube is gone and it's a very straightforward operation, but the downside is you removed a tube. And people's, their fertility is still essentially the same with one tube, but now, you know, they're down a tube. And so what if, you know, if the other tube, let's say were damaged and now you're left with a damaged tube or whatever, people obviously are typically not so pleased about having things removed from their body that could potentially be working. So there isn't a right or a wrong in how to do this, but different people view it differently, maybe different for based on the woman's specific circumstances. So, and if she comes in and sometimes we see a lot of blood in the belly, sometimes we see a little, sometimes these women require blood transfusions and hospitalization. You can bleed a lot if the ectopic ruptures. And sometimes it's it's not so bad, just a little bit of blood. And after that's cleaned out and the tube's gone, she goes home, you know, two hours later, either of those are possible. Okay. So let's say that's not the situation. Let's say she's coming to the office and based on our deductive reasoning, we said, okay, you look fine. You're doing great. However, we're pretty confident this pregnancy is in the tube. You have an ectopic pregnancy. What are your options at that point? In general, there are two categories. One is to treat it medically, and the other one is to treat it surgically. In the medical category, there are criteria that allow you to treat the pregnancy with an injection that's called methotrexate. So methotrexate is a way of, through medication, treating the pregnancy to help dissolve it is the words that people use, and that's probably not medically correct. And then the second choice is to go and address it surgically. So back in the same category that we would with an emergent case where we would either make an opening in the tube and milk it out or we would actually remove the tube. So for a lot of people who meet criteria, and especially if they're found early and the hormone level is low and there isn't a heartbeat, those are pregnancies that are very easily treated with what's called methotrexate. And the criteria for what works and what doesn't work is really based on the hormone levels and the characteristics of it. The higher the hormone level, the bigger the pregnancy, the less likely it is to be successful. And there is an algorithm for how to follow your success. So it's usually a single dose of methotrexate. Methotrexate is actually technically, people put it in the category of a chemotherapy agent. It actually is not an agent that kills cells. It actually keeps them from dividing. So it blocks cell division. And because the pregnancy is rapidly dividing, you can actually stop the pregnancy from growing and then it begins to dissolve and begins to regress, shrink, and eventually dissolve. Right. Yeah. I mean, I tell people methotrexate is, it's like chemotherapy, but it's not the kind that's going to give you like the side effects that people classically associate with it. People don't get nauseous. They don't lose their hair. They don't, you know, they don't have any of that because it's a, it doesn't work the same way. And they're only getting one injection. It's an intramuscular injection. It's like getting a vaccine. You typically get it once. And as you said, since the pregnancy is supposed to be rapidly dividing, it'll sort of hone in 
on that area. So it's something you would not give to someone under any circumstances if they had a normal viable pregnancy because it could for sure cause a miscarriage or you know birth defects. But in an ectopic pregnancy, it's quite effective somewhere, you know, 75 to 90% of the time after that one shot, basically the hormone levels eventually start to drop and nothing happens and all is good. And so that's a nice option for people who don't want surgery or maybe have higher risk for surgery potentially. And so why, other than them not being a good candidate because the pregnancy is too advanced, that it's not going to work, why would someone not choose methotrexate if that's an option for them? So methotrexate, there are potential complications from methotrexate. There are a few medical conditions that people shouldn't take methotrexate. We need to make sure that their liver's working properly, their kidney's working properly, their bone marrow is reasonable because it can affect all of the above. Methotrexate is also not good for people who we can't follow through time because what we have to do before we give the methotrexate is we actually have to find out what the hormone of pregnancy is about four days later, we need to redraw that again. It usually still continues to go up, which people don't like, and that's <laughs> unnerving to people in the beginning. But we redraw it at day seven, and if it hasn't gone down by a certain percentage, they can be a candidate for a second dose. Right. So one of the greatest reasons for why we wouldn't use methotrexate is a non-compliant patient, somebody who we couldn't follow through time or is unwilling to consent to the process or be followed through time. Right. Or sometimes women will just say, this is like, I'd rather have surgery today or tomorrow than have to come get blood draws twice a week or once a week for the next month and potentially need another injection and 10 to 20% of the time maybe need surgery anyways because it doesn't work. And so for whatever reason, it's just not, you know, doesn't work with her life. Or maybe she's about to move out of town. And there's, you know, there's a lot of reasons why they may have, or maybe she doesn't, this wasn't a planned pregnancy. And maybe she doesn't intend on having pregnancies moving forward. And she's totally fine having the tube removed. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but it is definitely uh, an undertaking to do methotrexate. It requires a lot of visits, a lot of follow-up because if the hormone's not dropping appropriately, Number one, they may be able to get a second injection, but number two, they're at risk still from the topic pregnancy. All the risks that they had, that she had, still exist. And there's also that small chance that if it doesn't work, the tube could rupture in the first you know, few days, just coincidentally after you gave them methotrexate. So for some women, they just don't want any part of it and they have surgery. I find that most, if they're a good candidate, would prefer to have the injection and you know come back several times and have surgery, but not everybody. And so we give them both options. What about, there are some people who we actually follow without doing either of those when we're pretty sure there's an ectopic because some ectopics, quote unquote, miscarry on their own. If sort of we, someone we think has an ectopic, but maybe the hormone's on the way down already, or it's very, very low, we'll check again. And for some of these women, they don't need anything. They just need to be followed. The lucky ones, I would say, the lucky, unlucky ones. So those are called tubal abortion. Yeah. Meaning that the pregnancy just automatically, or not automatically, but just spontaneously comes out of the tube. And the literature is very confused on the actual number of those that actually really happen because a lot of people are nervous following people through time. Yeah. It's it's sometimes it's nerve-wracking. Sometimes it's only if we're fortunate enough that in the process of diagnosing an ectopic, we saw that the hormone level's already dropping. And they're saying, okay, listen, if it's dropping on its own, this is what we would have been looking for with methotrexate, so we can just watch it drop. Uh, but for most people, that's not the case, and most people are not so comfortable. There are also circumstances when you don't know for sure if it's an ectopic or it's in the uterus. So for example, if the hormone level is not going up anymore, 
but it's not going down anymore. We call it plateaued. And we can't see the pregnancy anywhere. And it's at a low level. It could be outside the uterus, but it could be inside the uterus and very small and we don't see it. And those situations, you could sometimes give methotrexate and it'll work wherever it is. Like we know it's not a good pregnancy. It's certainly not a viable pregnancy. So it's not you know, an abortion, it's either a miscarriage or an ectopic, or sometimes people will then do a DNC, which seems counterintuitive because a DNC is going to clean out the uterus, which won't help an ectopic. But what happens is if you do the DNC and then the pregnancy hormone plummets, A, you know it wasn't an ectopic, it was in the uterus, and B, you're done. And then you could do that. And so that's sometimes part of the treatment algorithm, the DNC, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface, it actually does in these circumstances when you're not sure what's going on called PUL, yeah. Pregnancy of Unknown Location. Right. And they're they're hard to follow. And it's it's interesting. It's a little detective work yeah. trying to figure out who's where and what what's the best way to treat them. And sometimes it actually matters because with a pregnancy of an unknown location, if we're able, like if you give methotrexate, it goes away, okay, it doesn't sort of matter practically for that pregnancy, but it does for the next pregnancy because if someone has a, a very early miscarriage that was in the uterus, in the future, she's not at risk for an ectopic pregnancy because of that. But if she has an ectopic pregnancy, in her next pregnancy, she has a markedly increased risk. And so sometimes we like to figure out which of those two it is just to help her know what her risk is in the future. And so in that regard, if someone does have an ectopic pregnancy and we treat it either with methotrexate or with surgery, what do you tell them about, you know, A, when can they get pregnant again? And B, what about that next pregnancy? In terms of getting pregnant again, we usually follow these folks to an um, HCG level of, of zero. Most labs report out less than two. And once they get to that point, we can actually tell them that they can really get pregnant beyond that. It's only if they have an abnormal pregnancy to, that we follow them for like six months. A molar pregnancy, which is its own podcast. It's its own yeah. podcast. <laughs> Molar pregnancy, placental site tumors, yeah. all of those go into the abnormal pregnancy category. Right. So those all get followed very differently. But once somebody's gone down to zero and they have a regular period, they should be fine to go ahead and get pregnant. Right. And then what do you tell them about risks in future pregnancy and maybe how they should be followed differently? Do you do that at all? We do. Again, risk of ectopic you know, 1%, some people say 2%, but somewhere in that ballpark or half a percent, it's it's very variable. The likelihood that they will have another ectopic can be as high as 10% in a, a future pregnancy. And again, the numbers, some say 5%, some say 10%, but that's five times higher or even 10 times higher than the general population. Right. And so, and so we typically, if someone has a history of ectopic, we do want to see them early, you know, say, yes, come at six weeks, you know, after your period, because if it's in the uterus, we'll see it. And if not, we could do it because it's a higher risk. Whether all pregnant women should do that is debatable. On the one hand, yeah, you'll probably pick up ectopic pregnancies early. But on the other hand, many, many women are going to sort of go through these, you know, days or weeks of uncertainty as to what's going to be with their pregnancy. And you can cause more anxiety potentially. So again, it's one of these things we have to weigh, making a lot of people sort of nervous about the possibility in order to pick up an ectopic in one person? And how many people is it worth making nervous in order to pick up that ectopic? And people disagree about that. So it's not currently recommended that everybody comes and gets a six-week ultrasound to see what's going on, but a lot of people prefer to. And we certainly recommend it for people at increased risk for ectopic, like women 
who have a history of a topic, or like you said, if someone we know has an IUD and calls and says, hey, I'm pregnant, we bring them in right away because there it's like a 50% chance and it's going to be ectopic. It's very high or somewhere in that range if they if they have an IUD in place. And then if if they had an ectopic and the next pregnancy is in the uterus, everything's fine, it really should not impact that pregnancy. The fact that, you know, years prior they had an ectopic, meaning it shouldn't affect the growth of this pregnancy or anything like that. It's really just that part about not having ectopic again. In terms of other ectopic pregnancies, like cervical ectopic pregnancy, the treatment is a little bit more complex. I mean, sometimes you can do methotrexate and it works. Surgery is harder because you have to get that way and there's a higher chance of bleeding. A lot of people have different treatments that are not, none of them are proven to be better than others, but they're all a little bit innovative, you know, doing needles vaginally, injecting things into the sac. There's this for the cesarean scar topic, we've been using this technique with a balloon. And there's, you know, these again are other, these can be the talks in themselves, but when it's in the tube, the surgery is pretty straightforward. And those other parts, it's much less straightforward. So that that's a more complicated situation. We had a lot of case series where we did high dose methotrexate. Right. And leucovorin is basically folic acid rescue. So right. leucovorin rescue. It's like every other day you get an injection. You do. Yeah. And keeping people in the hospital for both cesarean scar ectopics, because we were calling them cesarean scar ectopics, right. as well as cervical pregnancies. And we were very lucky. They worked out great. Well, Liz, thank you so much for coming to talk about ectopic pregnancy. Again, this is something that like we as doctors think about pretty much every day. And fortunately, most women don't have to think about it because most women don't have it. But this is definitely on the mind of your doctor. If uh, she or he is seeing you early in pregnancy, that's the first thing they're looking for. Make sure the pregnancy is not ectopic and then everything else hopefully will fall into place as well. Thanks for coming on, Liz. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Nina. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.